Hello. Bonjour. <laughs> we want to wish all of our American listeners a very happy Thanksgiving. I hope everyone is getting all of their delicious yum-yums, spending some time with family, and watching a ton of football, because I know that's what my family does. <laughs> I know I'm a bad Canadian, but I never, when I moved to the States, I kind of stopped celebrating Canadian Thanksgiving. This past year was my first time I celebrated Canadian Thanksgiving in a while. But they're very, very different. In Canada, we do not watch football. No. <laughs> and then in the States, we we eat and we watch football yeah. all day long. It's like a free football Sunday. And I know there's things to be thankful for and all that stuff, but that's what it feels like to me sometimes. And I, when I was younger and watched Friends, the Thanksgiving episodes were huge in the Friends universe. And the one where they play football... Uh, after Thanksgiving, because none of them can get together with their family. And I did not understand it. <laughs> Why is like, everybody playing football? Why are they so passionate about football? Mm -hmm, very much so. <laughs> so with me being very excited for Thanksgiving, we also want to share that we have a very, very, very exciting Patreon deal. It's our first one ever. Please head on over to our Patreon for the most epic Black Friday deal of the century. We want to remind you that every dollar that you spend goes back into our podcast to make to make it even bigger and better. I know we say this every single episode, but we are so, 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 so thankful for all of you who are listening, sharing, interacting with us through this podcast and all of our socials. Well, you know that is very fitting for Thanksgiving. We hope that you've had the opportunity to spend time with your loved ones. And if you're unable this year, we're so glad that you're here spending time with us. So to kick it all off, I do have a fantastic joke for you to set the tone. Okie dokie. Where does a Canadian alcoholic go to get help? Oh, God. Where? AA. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> Okay. Don't tell me you didn't love that. It was all right. It was all right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, I'm so sorry that you didn't appreciate my good humor, but hopefully this story will raise your spirits. Oh, gosh. <laughs> In all honesty, it probably won't. You can't get a scent to podcasting jail. No. How many puns are in this? <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to wait and see. Oh, boy. Um, so as humorous as this case is on paper, it really is anything but funny. He murdered marginalized women, First Nations women, and sex workers, and got away with it over and over again. Today's tale from the Chesterfield is about the boozing barber, Gilbert Paul Jordan, who over the course of three decades killed eight to ten women in an episode we call Sip Me Baby One Last Time. Before the barber got into the business of killing, his trouble with the law started early. Not much is known about Gilbert's childhood in Vancouver, British Columbia, likely because it was fairly unremarkable. We can often pinpoint traumatic events or situations in a killer's life that may lead us to a breadcrumb of understanding their choices. The most traumatic part of Gilbert's young life was his parents' divorce. Now, I don't want to downplay the effects of a divorced household, but by no means do we see this as that for sure thing that all children who experience their parents' divorce will lead to a life of crime. 
If Gilbert was that affected by his parents' divorce, it's likely it had more to do with the feelings of fear and uncertainty that the divorce brought out in him. Possibly feelings of grief and loss as he lived with his father after the divorce, and maybe that was a little bit too much for Gilbert to be able to cope with. Perhaps we see his trauma weave through his very intimate murders, trying to build connection through alcohol and sex, only to take it too far and murder at least eight women. Gilbert's childhood was cut short as he dropped out of school at the age of 13 and was drinking heavily by the age of 16. I read that he drank upwards to 50 ounces of vodka per day. A Mickey is about 16 ounces. Gilbert did have siblings, and the older brother has stayed relatively quiet about Gilbert's early life. It is reported that Gilbert struggled in school, not to make any friends, and that he was kind of his own worst enemy. What this means is certainly up for interpretation. Now, we know that society can also play a big factor in shaping someone's life. For people around our age, events like 9-11 are a stamp in many people's memories. I definitely remember the exact moment that I learned about 9-11. I was walking through the school's hallway, and all the teachers were standing outside of the hallway kind of ushering kids into the classroom, and that was by no means normal. Mm -hmm. So it seemed like something was already off, and my class was on the second floor, so we're all just kind of like, what's going on, what's going on? This is so strange. So we got it to the class, and they rolled the TV in, and they actually turned on the news. Wow. And we watched it. Like You would have been in school. high school. I was in grade nine. Okay. Yeah. So... We feared, of course, after it happens, you start to, conspiracy theories are running mm, wild. Oh, absolutely. We, nobody knew what to think or, yeah. No, absolutely not. And so they flowed into the Pentagon. They flew into both towers. Yeah. I think there was, at that point, the pl- one other plane was missing. And so there was the possibility and the talk of where are they going to do it next mm-hmm. and being in the Niagara region, they talked about the power station. And so where we are, the power station powers all of New York City mm-hmm. and surrounding areas. So if they were going to take out more of New York, how would they do that effectively? By bombing the power, not bombing, by flowing the flow. By flying into flying the into the Yeah. Absolutely. No, flying into the power station. Oh, into the power station. Sorry. Yeah. what you're trying to say here. Picking up what you put down. <laughs> <laughs> so that definitely had an impact on me I'm sure it had an impact on pretty much everybody who was there Mm -hmm. you still see videos and conspiracy theories swirling around social media Mm -hmm. on 9-11 so I can imagine things like that really do shape people and their trauma experiences and it changed the the entire world I mean just this is so minuscule to say but just even the way that we go to an airport Mm -hmm. but if we had got if we had been travelers in 2000 in the year 2000 um we we would have a completely different experience i have no memory of traveling before i feel like passports weren't really no. a huge deal prior to 9-11 i think now because everybody needs a passport even my son needed a passport when he was younger mm-hmm. to fly you can get across the border without but to fly you need one yeah and i think that was a product of 9-11 oh absolutely Absolutely. And just even the security. You can't go past the security. I always love when comedians are like, you know, now we can just drop people off at the airport before you had to bring them in and and see them to the gate. And like oh, right. all in the past movies, they would like be running through. Like friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and running yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And that, that just doesn't happen anymore. So it would shape. It would shape the way that society shapes all of us, of course. Mm -hmm. Of course. 
So Canada in 1947 was not very glamorous either. Living in Vancouver, he was 14 at the time of World War II. So very similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Unlike the post-war depression in the 30s, this war brought out an economic boom. His father, Jack Elsie, worked multiple jobs, a railway worker, bus driver, and conductor, and then he later became a banker. As a blue-collar worker, post-war opportunities were fruitful, and having two sons to take care of as a single dad, I'm sure he was working as often as he could to be able to take care of his family. Jack remarried and had his third child in this time as well. The family stayed relatively quiet over the years, saying very little and nothing remarkable about Gilbert's life at home. We often want to have that aha moment, which I think we've said in previous episodes, to explain the behavior away, but Gilbert's story, it just doesn't exist. His criminal history is not riddled with petty crime as some serial killers start out by doing, like Richard Ramirez or Robert Chambers. In 1961, Gilbert was charged with the abduction of a five-year-old Indigenous girl, but was never convicted. In the same year, Gilbert was found on the Lion Gates Bridge looking to die by suicide. This was actually big news at the time as he held up traffic for hours before being arrested. Two years later, in 1963, he lured two women to his car under the pretenses of giving them alcohol in exchange for sex. While one woman was outside of the vehicle, Gilbert sped away with the other woman, where he stopped the car and proceeded to rape her. While arrested and charged with rape and theft for this incident, since the women were drinking with Gilbert, he was only convicted of theft. Oh my god. During his trial, he was held in contempt after giving the judge a Nazi salute and a great big heil. He was sentenced to six months for the Nazi thing, but subsequently was sentenced to two years for the theft. Oh, wow. This is just age-old victim-blaming that we still literally see today. Mm -hmm. Oh, all the time. What was she wearing? How much was she drinking? Who did she go to the party with? Mm -hmm. Who did she, you know, what did she expect? She expected a hangover. Yeah. She, she expected it. She prepared herself for a hangover. Maybe a few bruises if along maybe, the way. Yeah. <laughs> Falling asleep in a bush or two. <laughs> but that's, yeah, we very classic and still very prevalent, just as he said. But don't worry, mixed with these serious crimes, he was also racking up a slew of other arrests. Drunk driving, grand theft auto, burglary, indecent exposure, and assault. It wasn't until he was arrested in 1976 that someone somewhere decided this guy was not okay. Hmm. And I can't even continue the story from this point. So much happened between these incidences and his diagnosis in 76. So before we talk more about Gilbert, we need to roll back the tapes. Being originally from Vancouver, Gilbert knew where to target women for his sexually deviant acts. Vancouver's Lower East Side, also known as Skid Row, provided Gilbert with a cape of invisibility. If you don't know what he looks like, we'll put his photo on our socials. He could be anyone. There is nothing remarkable on how he presents himself, and with his own dependency on alcohol, he just blends in. Gilbert's first victim was Ivy Rose Oswald, a 52-year-old switchboard operator from England that would accompany Gilbert on his drinking binges. Based on what we know about him and his pattern of behavior, the bar was either shutting down or he ran out of money, and with the urge to continue to party, he offered Ivy Rose the opportunity back in his hotel room. Unfortunately, this would be her last night, as she was found dead in the Lower East Side Hotel, nude and with a blood alcohol level of 0.51. I did this. Like, when the bars closed down, mm-hmm. I didn't want to stop drinking some nights. Mm-hmm. And people would offer or say, oh, you know what? I have more alcohol at home. We can just carry on or go to a hotel room because 
we met people who were there to party and we would literally continue the party back wherever. This is my entire youth pretty much. Yeah. Now I never did it alone. I will say that like as women, we know, we knew and we know that there's a strong possibility that men will take advantage of us we go back to the victim blaming pieces at that time too it depended on how we presented ourselves what we wore how much we drank and the shame that would surround us as women who asked for it or if we made bad decisions we I think have come a long way in society and understanding consent But you still hear this argument when alcohol is a factor. You know about Canada's latest and greatest addition to our justice system, right? No. No, I don't. The extreme intoxication defense? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I do not. So What? I put it down here so that I could remember exactly. But Google says extreme intoxication can be a defense when an individual is in a state akin to automatism where they are said to not have conscious control over their actions due to self-intoxication. The extreme intoxication defense can be used by an accused to be acquitted of the crime and thereby avoid criminal responsibility. So there was actually a report done, I think a couple years back by Western University, of the 86 cases that used this defense in court, 63 of these were women as the victims of violence. Wow. So this is just patriarchy at its finest and this when did this happen when like i want to say it was like it wasn't that long ago maybe 2017 it started to get talked about it was just within the last few years that it actually became a legal defense that people can use i i'm i'm actually i'm 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 just a little bit speechless no i didn't know that and it does of course we're going to see that it's violence against it's, it's probably a lot of domestic violence, I imagine, as domestic well. Domestic violence, femicide. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 100%. Oh absolutely. It's providing an out because I drank too much alcohol and now I'm in a state where I just don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, so do I, I don't that? need to go to... Yeah, I don't need to... You, it, yeah, exactly. People can drink X amount of... T- you and I can both have two beers and it will affect us very differently. Mm-hmm. And we're fairly similar in uh, gender, in size all those things but Mm -hmm. it's still going to affect us very differently there are people who can drink 48 beers yes and be not fine by any means but can still hold a conversation so on and so forth tolerance is tolerance is different so this sounds very very similar to the rough sex act and i am not a lawyer we are not lawyers so but it's it's used as a defense of if you die within a sexual act they're arguing that you consented to having rough sex and therefore this could possibly be a risk. So a really famous case is, is Grace Mullane. And I'm not going to say his name because he doesn't deserve any type of recognition whatsoever. But the bastard did end up getting away with it and poor Grace Mullane's family. Even if Grace consented to having rough sex, she did not consent to die. Mm-hmm. Period. Rest in peace, Grace, and I'm so sorry that you did not get justice, but that that's what this feels like. It's very much blaming blaming the victim and saying, you know, if you if you don't want to have rough sex, then don't if you don't want to die, don't have rough sex. Like yeah, people, millions of people around the world have rough sex, and you don't continue you don't 
consent to die when you engage in that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So that's what this feels like. It's old and timey. It's blaming the victim. Why didn't the person leave if this person was too intoxicated? Why did they stay engaged? You know what I mean? They- now, Ivy Rose's death was investigated and ruled unnatural and accidental. A blood alcohol content of 0.51 is certainly over the risky limit of blood alcohol poisoning. In Canada, a person can legally drive with a BAC under 0.08 when over the age of 21. We have a zero tolerance policy for, for anyone younger than 21 years old. In general, it may take about two to three standard drinks for an average weight female to reach a BAC of 0.05 within one hour, but all of these numbers are relational to the person's age, weight, height, and tolerance of alcohol. Alcohol poisoning is seen between BAC of 0.30% to 0.40% and can be potentially life-threatening and experience loss of consciousness. BAC over 0.4% is a potentially fatal blood alcohol level. Ivy Rose was 0.11 points higher than that fatal level because at this point I feel like my overall judgment of this man can cloud my opinions on Ivy Rose's death, but I do not think Gilbert meant to kill her. I don't think this was a premeditated murder. I do believe Gilbert is responsible for her death. However, up until this point, Gilbert's MO has been to kidnap, provide, and force alcohol and rape women. While we often see the escalation between these crimes, based on the evidence out there, my assumption is that Gilbert's intentions were not to kill Ivy Rose. However, I do believe that her death was the catalyst for Gilbert's future crimes. Police who attended the scene assumed she drank too much and died. The police gave Gilbert too much credit, especially when you look at his rap sheet, including the fact that her items were found in his possession. Even though he was the one to phone the police to report Ivy Rose's death, the police listened and believed his story that he woke up next to her after a night of binge drinking and that she had drank herself to death. I suppose not a far tale from the truth. You would have to assume that death by drugs and alcohol were probably a common thing for the police to be called to. Unfortunately, for those who are deemed less than by society, do not have an outpouring of support, even by those who are police officers. If the police cared enough to do a proper investigation, Gilbert could have been charged with manslaughter. I think this is one downfall to investigative policing, which logically I understand, but I've seen too many times. Police need criminal acts in order to take further legal steps. Conspiracy to commit a crime needs two or more people involved so that the police can cooperate that conspiracy. Mm. Police cannot step in under a hunch that someone is about to commit a crime or when someone has a gut feeling that something ain't right. The crime has to happen prior to police involvement. So for Gilbert, and I'm only speculating here, perhaps the feelings that he had during or after her death and the fact that the method in which she died could be so easily explained away gave him the green light to continue targeting and murdering women and escalating to murder. Gilbert at this time had even changed his name, albeit not very much. Born Gilbert Paul Elsie, he then changed his last name to Jordan. People talk, rumors and gossip swirl very quickly, He changed his name so that he could have a clean slate. Mm -hmm. Blame it on Elsie. My last name's Jordan. What a weird coincidence. Gilbert didn't kill again until 1980. Between Ivy Rose's death and the 80s, Gilbert continued to battle with alcohol dependency and, and continued to commit sexually devious crimes. In 1969, he was caught drinking and driving twice in one day. Wow. Wow. 
In 71, he was caught fondling himself in front of a group of children who he had coaxed back to his house to watch television, but was let go. Okay. Let's just prepare ourselves on how angry we're going to get as these sentences continue. (laughs) In 73, again, he was charged with indecent public acts and indecent assault, and this time convicted. He had lured a woman back to his home where he offered her enough alcohol for her to slip unconscious. When she awoke, she saw Gilbert with his pants around his ankles. She would not agree to have sex with him, so he proceeded to assault her. Once he was asleep, the woman fled the home and went to police. The Crown tried to have him declared a dangerous offender, but Jordan's lawyer intervened, and the request was denied. During his court appearances, he never showed remorse or empathy for his victims, or any of the lewd acts he had conducted. Shocker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I'm just angry at how many things he's doing. He's hurting. He's harming children. Yeah. He's harming women. He's a danger to the public. He's a huge danger to the to the public. And these are all like, why was he let go after after fondling himself in front of a group of children? Yeah. <laughs> why? I know. Why not? Why? Oh, that's, that just made me angry. In 1975, Gilbert was out, and after being locked up for almost two years, he felt compelled to continue drinking and continue targeting women. These next strings of crime echo those of his acts prior to Ivy, and just lend to the suspicion that Ivy's death was not intentional. Not long after his release from jail, Gilbert kidnapped a woman from a psychiatric facility, telling her that he was a doctor and luring her into his car. Police charged him on several counts, including kidnapping and sexual intercourse with a feeble-minded person, and he was sentenced to 26 months for assault. It was during this jail sentence that Gilbert saw a psychiatrist, Dr. Tabor Bezzaretti, and received the diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder. Okay, so let's play a game. Love this. I'm going to read you a list of the signs that someone may have this disorder, and you just check off all the ones that remind you of Gilby. You guys can play at home, too. All right, let's do it. Exploit, manipulate, or violate the rights of others. Mm -hmm. Lack, concern, regret, or remorse about other people's distress. Mm -hmm. Behave irresponsibly and show disregard for normal social behavior. Mm -hmm. Have difficulty sustaining long-term relationships. Mm -hmm. Be unable to control their anger. Mm -hmm. Lack guilt or not learn from their mistakes. Mm-hmm. Blame others for their problems in their lives mm-hmm. and repeatedly break the law. Ding, 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 ding. Eight <laughs> out of eight for good old Gilby. A person with antisocial personality disorder will have a history of conduct disorder during childhood, such as truancy, not going to school, delinquency, so for example, committing crimes or substance misuse, and other disruptive or aggressive behaviors. Yeah. It's pretty clear. Yeah. Like, when you put it all in black and white on paper, reading it off mm-hmm. after what we have just read and listened to, it's very check, check, yeah. check, check. That yeah. is him in a nutshell. Yeah. And we don't like to put people in boxes. You know, there's the world is not black and white. Um, the world is all gray. Um, but this, this, there are the cases that this is one of those ones that it's very much... It's correct. This is correct. Yes. The DSM, What I don't know what it would have been at that time. I don't know. DSM, we're at five now. Probably would have been at like the DSM two, two. at that point. The DSM two had it, had it right on that one. Yeah. Yeah. We're only at five. 
a lot of them don't actually change. There's not a lot of different additions because there are some that are socially accepted as not a medical diagnosis. However, if it was deemed not a medical diagnosis, a lot of the medical, the physical medical pieces would not be attached anymore. Mm -hmm. So um, they have allowed some of those diagnoses to stay in the DSM so that folks can get the medical support that they need associated with it. So there's a few different things and reasons why we haven't had like 14 since the 1980s. That's that's very true. But that's a big reason for it because they're trying to protect some of the physical medical side of things. It was one of these many minor stints in jail that Gilbert also learned a trade. With money from his inheritance, Gilbert opened up a barber shop. This wasn't the charming human meat-eating demon barber of Fleet Street. Say that five times fast. (laughs) It was the worst haircut to Vancouver. (laughs) (laughs) God. You're welcome, everyone. I don't know why I'm not a musical sensation. If I could If this doesn't work out... Music. Yes, no problem. (laughs) (laughs) If I could sing, I would be a force in this world, I swear to God. (laughs) It's true. Everybody knows it. Yeah, yeah. anybody who knows you personally, for sure. (laughs) I was was voted um, the best singer in grade 8 yearbook by my peers. Thank you, peers. Peers of grade (laughs) 8. For... I'm now 36 years old and still believe it in my heart that I am. That's good. Yeah. That's good. I wasn't voted anything in my yearbook. (laughs) Did you have voting? Absolutely. Yeah. I just wasn't like, I just wasn't like a super, I don't know, popular kid. Like, I don't feel like I was unpopular. I never went through my childhood like, I really wish I had my friends. But (laughs) I didn't. I wasn't considered, like, popular. Popular enough to be voted the best singer in grade 8. Right, yeah. I mean, in grade 8, my... Okay, I I repped in grade 8. Grade 8 was where I peaked in popularity, I think. Sick. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I went to... I went to a really small school, Mm -hmm. which is a parking lot now in St. Catharines. (laughs) Shout out to the past Grey Gables. Now it's just a parking lot. They've demolished it. It's literally just a parking lot. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I peaked. We were all really close friends, but we didn't we didn't vote in grade eight. We didn't vote anything. That's boring. I don't think. I know. But in high school, I definitely wasn't voted anything. I will say I used to love yearbooks because you used to put like, every year you got a different question and you got to answer that question for yourself. The kids don't do that nowadays. They don't? So like my... I think it was grade seven or grade eight. It was like, what are you most likely to be when you're older? Mm-hmm. And um, they all voted me that I would be the manager of the Hardy Boys when I was older. <laughs> I can't help that. <laughs> I'm still vying for the job. Yeah. Um, even though Jeff Hardy's not wrestling anymore. He's just waiting for me. You know, he's probably going to hear this podcast. Mm-hmm. And he's going to go, ah, that's the voice of the manager I've been needing. <laughs> Time to return. It's time. <laughs> Eat these time. Um, no, for sure. But you give off popular person energy. Do I? Yeah. Oh. Not in a mean way. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was not very nice in elementary school. I was popular up until like a point, and I was not very kind to people. I'll admit it. But at the same time, like, I also had a lot of struggles in high school. I had my core group of friends, Mm -hmm. but there was a lot of stuff that uh, 
I was no longer popular, nor did I want to be popular. And I was okay with that. And like, I'm not, I'm not one of those girls. Right. But uh, it shaped my beautiful, wonderful person I am today. You, it did. And you are, and you're absolutely lovely. I was a mess in uh, high school for a few years. It was wonderful. I love it. I wouldn't it. trade it for no, the No, you need it. I think that that's the same with in my high school. So Blake and I will often talk about are the very different experiences mm-hmm. that we had in high school. And like Blake was... He played football, and Mm -hmm. he played – he also bowled. (laughs) Nerd. (laughs) (laughs) He's such a good bowler. Yes, he is such a good – he is such a good bowler. But he he had a very well-rounded, like – with a lot of friends. He, mm-hmm. he just was very different, and and he talked about, like, how severe some of the bullying was and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, like, in my high school, it wasn't, like – I don't know. There was obviously the popular kids, but they weren't mean. Mm-hmm. Like, there's one girl that used to – she was quite – she was she sat in front of me, and she in, – in my um, science class, and she was lovely, mm-hmm. but very, very popular. And, and, like, we just didn't have that. And I, when I would talk to – I talked to Blake about it and he's like, no, she wouldn't have, the popular girl wouldn't have sat in front of you and just been nice to you. I always found it strange because there was obviously pockets of friends Mm -hmm. and I kind of had two pockets of friends who were both wonderful, but they don't, they didn't coincide with each Mm -hmm. other. But when we were in class and we had a class together, no matter who they were, what group they were friends with, Mm -hmm. you were friends in the class. The yeah. moment you walked out of the class, you didn't speak to each other. Right. Yeah. It was such a strange dynamic. I and would say it's pretty similar, yeah. Yeah. And the, the <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we're in a... On a Chesterfield. <laughs> we're on a Chesterfield, because that's what the whole premise is. Um, yeah, no, it's just very... It's wild how different. And But yeah, I would say that I would say the exact same... The exact same thing. Like, my... In high school, I had one best friend... Two best friends that I spent the whole time... I'm not friends with them anymore only spend any time with them but be fine in like a classroom mm-hmm. setting mm-hmm. yeah it's true I and a lot of my friends who you know now still today I met mm-hmm. at work yeah I'm working that's so. how we became friends yeah we became friends me and you and and Samantha and Samantha and I that's how we became friends mm-hmm. yeah it's all from work all of my friends now are from working even in high school yeah so, which is interesting I don't know how we got that far off of going oh. from you singing. Oh, you were singing. I was singing. <laughs> Slow Cam Barbershop became a killing ground for Gilbert over the next decade. Fun fact, you can still visit the site of the barbershop on Kingsway Avenue in Vancouver. It is now a ballet studio. The shop was close to the area of the bars that he used to stalk women on the east side of Vancouver and came to serve as where he would lure three of his victims to and eventually murder them. Do you think, like locations buildings stores ballet studios can hold energy from situations like this i i would think yes especially i mean i don't know yet but especially if yeah if this is where these things happened could you imagine bring putting your kid in ballet and then finding out yeah it was the murder grounds for one of canada's most notorious serial killers yeah like that's wild i would think that's cool you would think that's cool most people won't think that's most cool. people won't think that's cool and you see a lot of buildings we're actually going to talk about this in a later episode that i'm writing right now that a lot of the places where mass murders or a very famous deadly disastery murder type thing happens they are starting to demolish mm-hmm. those buildings because it like idaho it. yeah yeah idaho i don't know how i feel about it because i i don't think that they 
I think that they're possibly getting rid of evidence. I don't, mm-hmm. I, I understand why they're doing it. They don't want that kind of dark tourist to go to these places. They don't want to, that, that's, it's a small community. Mm-hmm. So they don't want to remind the community all the time. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a little bit dangerous until everything's all wrapped up. That's what I agree with. Mm-hmm. Dahmer's family home still goes up for sale every once in a while. And I'm, I always check it out every time mm-hmm. that it goes up for sale because I, that dark tourism is mm-hmm. definitely something I like to do. Oh, absolutely. I think, I don't know. I'm, I like dark tourism as well. We, we do mm-hmm. these things together. But I think that with Dahmer, it, enough time has passed mm-hmm. that I don't want to say it's okay, but it's better. But it's, that's the same time as this. As this, yeah. Oh, but I'm saying, I'm oh, talking about Idaho. Idaho. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's the same time as this. And if they turn it into something else, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, it's a, it's obviously a shop. Mm-hmm. Turn it If you turn it into something that isn't just, hey, this is Gilbert's ghoulish, Gilbert's ghoulish booze bar. Bar, booze bar. yeah, booze bar. And they they try to get that would famous. That so bad. Mm-hmm. So the, the fact that it's a ballet studio, I think, is more respectful. It's like, yeah, awful things happened here. Who cares about that guy, mm-hmm. right? How much joy yeah. happens in a ballet studio. Mm-hmm. I danced for my entire youth and just the core memories and feelings that I have about dance still stand today. Yeah. So all of those kids have that energy put into that place. Yeah. And and if the energy of the victims are still there, I will take comfort in they get to be surrounded by that loving energy, that mm-hmm. exciting energy, that gumption energy, mm-hmm. rather than... Because homes and a shop are different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, That's true. You're not going to turn... Well, you people. I mean, people do turn homes into barbershops, but if it's just in a neighborhood, what are you going to turn it into other than... Right. You know, like, we can't turn your house into a mall. <laughs> you know, or, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, mm-hmm. it's just what you do with the space, right? Mary Johnson, 42 years of age, died in the company of Gilbert on November 30th, 1980, with a BAC of 0.34. The Vancouver Sun reported that following Mary's death, Sister Lavana Gentre phoned police, begging them to open the case on her sister's death, stating that Mary had phoned her just weeks and was afraid someone wanted to kill her. She's quoted as saying that, Authorities weren't interested at all in Mary. I guess I sounded like an overwrought sister, and they didn't want to get involved. The coroner ruled Mary's death as accidental, just like Ivy Rose Oswald. Within the year, Gilbert killed again, this time 27-year-old Barbara Ann Paul. Barbara died on September 11, 1981 at the Glenaird Hotel with a BAC of 0.41. Coroner Campbell concluded that the death was unnatural and accidental, stating, From the post-mortem results, it was very likely that Barbara Ann Paul was a chronic alcoholic, In this incident, there is no doubt that the quantity of alcohol consumed by Barbara Paul caused her death. No doubt. No. I have no doubt about it. I couldn't even say that with a non-snarky tone. Right. We don't like Coroner Campbell. After Barbara's death, it is unclear whether or not the police were aware or even questioning Gilbert's involvement in these women's deaths. As we go on to explain, all of Gilbert's victims were First Nation women. All suffered from alcohol dependency and were all described as sex workers. 
Still, to this day, many missing and murdered Indigenous folks are not investigated by police as they should be. This also stands true for many marginalized populations. Police are quick to dismiss and even mock victims and survivors of both petty and gruesome crimes. Criminals continue to target these women because they know this is about our justice system, and they continue to be overrepresented as victims and survivors of crimes. This is a direct outcome of colonization, cultural dislocation and assimilation, and poverty. Indigenous women and girls continue to face extreme forms of marginalization, including rates of violence that are many times those of other women. CTV reported that, though they represent about 4% of all women in Canada, Indigenous women made up nearly 28% of homicides perpetrated against women in 2019, while police estimated in 2015 that some 10% of the country's missing women were Indigenous. I hate that when you say that, I have no... Oh my God, that's so shocking. Mm-mm. I hate that. And I think because we are connected as mm-hmm. women to our community, we know these types of stats Mm -hmm. and that's why it's not shocking but I bet you there are people out there who have no idea and that's why in episodes like this it's so important to highlight the numbers and the statistics to put a name and face to these women and know that we as non-indigenous women need to educate ourselves and be allies to their community and say When you go missing, when you are targeted, we will be there to support you and Mm -hmm. your families, and we will do all that we can to raise our voices for you. Absolutely. All of Gilbert's crimes up until this point occurred in seedy motels, a place police expect crime and death to be caused by alcohol and drug poisonings. On the night of July 30th, 1982, Gilbert met Mary Johns. With the same MO, Gilbert forced Mary to drink alcohol until her death. This time, he brought Mary back to his barber shop. Mary died with a BAC of 0.76. Police found her face down on a foam mattress with only a blanket covering her body. Our good old friend, Coroner Campbell, is now quoted as saying, It is my feeling that she ingested an immense quantity of alcohol without realizing the lethal potentiality of it. He stated that there was no indication of foul play, and again, and again, one more time, ruled her death as unnatural and accidental. Now, I've been drunk. Oh, yeah. I've been drunk that I've blacked out. Mm -hmm. Mary drank twice the lethal amount of alcohol. Mm -hmm. In no world would I be at the point of blacking out and consensually Mm -hmm. continue drinking alcohol. And he's supposed to be a big, smart coroner man who should know that. But I don't think he cares. No. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Jeez. So I'm curious, though, at this point, like, why was this one different? I'm unsure why Gilbert would have decided to bring the women back to his barber shop rather than go to a hotel. I wonder, because he's been the one that's calling the police these times. I wonder if he's, mm. it's just, he's getting sloppy now. They don't, they don't care. Right. They don't, why wouldn't I? He's more comfortable in a, mm-hmm. his own place. Yeah, he's more comfortable in his own place. A barber shop is super unassuming. Mm-hmm. Um... He can, it's, it potentially, again, all speculation potentially might be like, hey, I have a, I own a business. Mm, Do you want to come check out my barber shop? Like, it's just, I would feel safer if someone was like, hey, do you want to come check out my business? Maybe have a couple of drinks. No, they're not going to murder me in their own business. You know, you know what I mean? Like, it's that false sense of safety. Again, 
total speculation, but it is that false sense of safety. Yeah. And there, I, I'm also, I don't know these women's stories, so I won't say it, but like, if I'm trying to just keep myself safe, my brain is going to be like a hotel room. I'm by myself. It's not a, you know what I mean? There's mm-hmm. multiple closed doors in a barber shop. Yeah. And these women probably know of the other women who have died. Yeah. Oh, very true. So there's probably rumors swirling that mm-hmm. they were with Gilbert. And so now he's not asking me to go to a motel room. He's mm-hmm. asking me to go to his business. Yeah. So it's different. Yeah. Patricia Thomas, 40 years old, was Gilbert's next victim. Just like Mary John's, Gilbert lured Patricia back to his barber shop. This time, Gilbert and Patricia went on a two-day bender, but the result was the same. She died on December 14, 1984, with a BAC of 0.51. The Vancouver Sun reported that Patricia drank enough to pass out, where possibly Gilbert thought she was dead. However, she woke up. Upon waking up, Gilbert again continued to coerce Patricia into continued drinking. After Patricia's death, Gilbert phoned the police. <laughs> Fucking gumption. Oh, yeah. He has the confidence mm-hmm. that he knows he won't be blamed for these women's deaths. And in all fairness, do you blame him? No. He's literally been the the only person. These women have not been found by John Doe down the road. It's literally by the man that they're drinking with. Like... Knock Hello, on wood. Mr. Police. It's yeah, me right. again, Gilbert. Right. I have another dead woman with yeah. me if you could just come and collect her. Yeah. Like, this is four now. That he's five. I don't even know. <laughs> this is four or five now that he himself has mm. been has been found with. Also, he has a severe criminal background. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know. Mm-hmm. And and if you're waking up to people who are drank um overdosed on any like this can't happen to the same dude like multiple times and the same it's but it is i know it is and you want to know why the coroner Mm -hmm. yeah the same coroner did the autopsy he reported there was evidence of external trauma you would think that this would kind of be the smoking gun but no dear listeners he ruled the trauma as trivial as trauma that could occur due to falling down while intoxicated, which, realistically, she probably did. But hey, red flag, three dead bodies in the same guy's room. At this point, again, I just don't think he cares. Mm-mm. No, he doesn't care. He wants to get in, do his job, get out. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure he's got his own opinion of people. Um that he's just like, oh, like, like we just said, another one, open and shut, here it goes. And, and it's the gumption. I'm not surprised that Gilbert is just like, oh yeah, I'll call. That's fine. I wish I could sing a different tune, but the sheer audacity of the police and coroner involved are part of this very tragic tale. On June 28th, 1985, Gilbert took his next victim, Patricia Josephine Andrew, 45 years old, died of alcohol poisoning with a BAC of 0.79. To get a BAC of 0.79, it would take an average woman 40 ounces of hard alcohol. So earlier we wrote that a Mickey is 16 ounces. Mm -hmm. When I first started drinking, I didn't know of mixers. Like I didn't know you're supposed to mix alcohol with Mm -hmm. things. So somebody would find us 
a Mickey of vodka, Smirnoff. And... <laughs> oh, that one made my stomach turn. Oh, God, Smirnoff. Sorry, go on. <laughs> and we would just take, like, little swigs from the bottle until we felt a little tipsy. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't drink a whole... I would probably drink maybe three ounces before I would be like, I'm hammered. Mm-hmm. Forty ounces. Yeah. 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 I can't even describe what that would mean. Yeah, no, for sure. To kind of add to add to your um, what what we used to drink and not understand a standing of mixers. Going to high school, I was kind of a bad girl in grade nine, <laughs> and got suspended. Oh shit! Because this guy got drunk at school with her friends. <laughs> but all year, all or sorry, we'd been drinking all week. Mm-hmm. This happened on a Thursday. I'm sorry, mom. This happened on a Thursday. I had been bringing the alcohol that I was stealing from my stepdad. So I knew what I was getting. Like, I knew what I was grabbing. And it was, like, vodka and just stuff that isn't, I don't know. There's different levels of hard alcohol, right? Yeah. So I knew what I was bringing. I knew what was in what bottle. And I was the I was the bad kid for the first three days. And then my friend, I think, it, I think her name was Val. It doesn't matter. Sorry if it's not you, Val. But, um... She brought it, and she brought bourbon and beer (laughs) in two separate water bottles. Uh But we're stupid grade niners, and and somebody was like, you have to drink beer really fast for you to feel anything. (laughs) (laughs) You have to drink beer really fast for you to feel anything. So, but the bourbon and the beer are the same color. So I get handed this this bottle trying to look super cool. Yes, tried to look super cool and drank. I still to this day can't look at bourbon, smell bourbon. I don't even like saying bourbon. But so I chugged like wow. probably about half a, bo- a half a water bottle of bourbon, hating the taste, but being like, I have to drink a fifth because, because I'm not going to keel anything if I don't drink it like this. So I drank. <laughs> I love your face right now. Um, so I drank it and it hit me immediately because I had just been having like little sips of vodka mm. and stuff and was getting a little tipsy but like I went to class afterwards and things were just a little bit funnier you know what I mean <laughs> I was stumbling all through the hallways I got caught within like 10 minutes of point a to point b yeah my stepdad who I would ironically been stealing the alcohol from my stepdad worked for DSBN oh good mm-hmm. yeah yeah so it was just the most mortifying experience. I never drank at school ever again. Good, yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> never drank at, at, at school Solid ever again. Choice. Don't, don't ever do that. No. It's not a good idea. Oh, my God. Um, but, yeah, so that's my little fun story. So, and that was, okay, so half a water bottle, how many ounces would you say that that is? I think a water bottle is 12 ounces, so half would, you would probably drink four or five ounces. Four or five ounces yeah. very quickly. Yeah. Um, and I was t- t- trashed. And oh, to yeah. this day, I would still be be trashed. Oh, you know 100%. what I mean? Like, you don't do that. No, <laughs> you mix it with like, and you drink water while during. Yeah. Um, so I can only imagine how much he would have had to force her to drink. Because I do genuinely believe. So I don't know if we're we're kind of jumping a gun here, but I genuinely believe that these women are passing out, mm-hmm. and he's then continuing, like forcing them to continue to drink while they're mm-hmm. already unconscious. Because to be able, like you said earlier, you can't. It be would be hard to drink that amount consensually. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's continue, my Oh, uh, I don't want to. Okay. <laughs> Hi, I'm a true crime podcaster and I 
love knowing about sad. true crime, but it still makes me sad. Patricia was a mother of four, and she died naked in Gilbert's barbershop. Her autopsy revealed severe degenerative changes in the heart and liver associated with chronic alcohol abuse. It is also reported that she and Gilbert had been drinking Chinese cooking wine. Oh, that made my stomach turn too. This time, a second coroner concluded her death was unnatural and accidental. I've never had cooking wine. It can be drank as a bevy and it's 9.5% alcohol. And it's 9.5% alcohol and for 500 milliliters, it's around $5.99 Canadian. At the LCBO, a 750 milliliter bottle of wine will run you about $13 to $20 per bottle at around the same percentage as the cooking wine. It is not significantly cheaper, but for the quantity Gilbert was forcing his victims to drink and drinking himself, every dollar counts. And if you weren't angry already, I'm sorry, it really doesn't get any better from here. On September 24th, 1986, Velma Dora Gibsons phoned her estranged husband, Ken Gibsons. Velma asked if he could pick her up so she could give their 12-year-old son a birthday gift. She did not drink when she spent time with her son, and Ken reported that she sounded sober on the phone. With this, he agreed to meet her at the Balmoral Hotel where she had been living, but she never showed up to the lobby to meet him for that ride. Police phoned Ken not long after and broke the news to him that Velma was dead. Velma died the very next day in room 315. Once her death was ruled as an acute alcohol poisoning, shocker, Ken Mm -hmm. phoned the police to state something was wrong. He had read in the report that she was found naked from the waist down and that there was no money on her. Welfare checks had just been distributed and she had cashed in that same day. There was also no alcohol found in the room, even though the coroner ruled alcohol was the cause of death. The only exception being Chinese cooking wine. What an MO. What a very specific MO for Campbell to not be picking up on here. Mm-hmm. Just two months later, Gilbert would take another life. Veronica Harry, 33 years old, who had lived a hard life in Vancouver, died sitting on the floor against a small dresser in the Clifton Hotel. Vera's face had cuts and bruises, but this did not raise any alarms. Working as a sex worker, dependent on alcohol, like the others, it was not unusual to get beaten up and assaulted. These cuts and bruises were just not out of place and not enough to raise any alarms. Vera died with a BAC of 0.04. So I was getting really curious as I was doing the research on these deaths and I looked up a BAC estimator. The Center on Alcohol, Substance Use, and Addictions at the University of New Mexico does have one online. You can use your gender, your weight, and have like an extensive list of the types of alcohol that you can choose from. Mm -hmm. So you put in the length of time you're drinking, how many drinks you're drinking, the number of ounces per drink. I say that I'm a casual drinker. I drink like one or two times per week, depending on what's going on in my life. Vacation, we're usually seven out of seven, Mm -hmm. having a glass of wine before bed. Um, But on a usual Friday night, my family and I always get together. We have dinner and some drinks. Sometimes we call it quits early. Sometimes we can literally party into the wee hours of the morning. I've been to them. Yeah. It's it's the wee hours. (laughs) Sometimes we're tired. That's true. No, no, that's true. Based on all the things that I had mentioned previously, when I I drink gin often, I'll drink gin coolers or gin and tonics. Um, sometimes I'll have beer, but I used gin. I can loosen up pretty good. It estimates me at a 0.039 BAC. 
And that really shook me. No cap. <laughs> As the kids say. That might, that might get edited out. Yeah. <laughs> so, of course, it's dependent on a lot of things that the computer can't know. So the calculator's fun. Do it and kind of see where you land based on how many drinks and who you are as a person to see what kind of BAC you might be hitting when, on a night out. But you can't determine if this is something like, if this many... Uh, if this is how many drinks that I have, is it safe to drive? There's not enough information that a computer can take to determine that. So I can now confirm that I can't drink 0.039 BAC. Let's just say that. Maybe next time we have a, a, a night out. Yeah. Or a night in. We never go out. <laughs> I love how unless we have a night out, we, might, we go for dinner and then we go to a home. Yes. <laughs> because we're... Super cool. We should we should play around with that. That sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. And also a good way to kind of establish. And I don't know if this is what it was used for, but it would be nice if you're like, okay, last night I got a little too out of hand. If yeah. you put in, if you put in what your factors were that night, if you're curious just to see where it might be, it can also be a way to kind of educate yourself and go, okay, that is true. You know what I mean? See it in numbers. Some people are numbers people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, you always talk about, like, when you're younger, you don't know what your limit is. Mm -hmm. That limit is literally based on science. Mm -hmm. So if you are a numbers person, if you like stats, if you like to kind of see it visually put out, it's kind of a cool way to do that and say, okay, when I hit five drinks in one night over this time period, this is kind of where I land, and I know I need to add an extra two hours onto that Mm -hmm. and pace myself a little bit more so that I don't hit that uh, that level of drunkenness. Yeah, absolutely. Gilbert finally came under suspicion of the law after murdering Vanessa Bucker, a 27-year-old who died on October 12, 1987, with a BAC of 0.91. This is more than any of his other victims. He is literally, like there's no other way to put it, getting away with murder. He has not only found his murder weapon with no fingerprints, but he is also satisfying his crude and sexually devious behaviors. He's choosing victims that the police, coroner, and even the community aren't batting an eye on because they've died due to alcohol poisoning. That is, until Vanessa. An anonymous tip is what brought police to the Niagara Hotel where they found Vanessa naked and dead. There's conflicting accounts on whether or not Vanessa was a sex worker or if she had had any substance dependencies. However, two weeks prior to her death, she gave birth to a daughter who was removed from her care due to, now known as, neonatal abstinence syndrome. At birth, her baby was experiencing drug withdrawal symptoms. This is usually due to exposure of opioids within the womb and does not often point the finger at alcohol. With this in mind, death by alcohol poisoning was finally ringing the alarms. This time, police found Gilbert's fingerprints on the drinking glasses inside of the hotel room. They also traced that anonymous phone call back to Gilbert himself. Does he want to be caught at this point? Does he want to be caught or, or is, is he, he getting sloppy like you said yeah. before? Yeah. But the anonymous phone call, mm-hmm. if he was getting sloppier, he would just be like, hey, it's Gilbert, man. Yeah, this that's is true. I, am. I wonder, I know it doesn't say, but I wonder if, you know, if this woman is, was maybe well known to the police, perhaps. Oh, maybe. If she's, you know, because it communities whether they trust the police or not there there are people that we recognize mm-hmm. you know so i wonder if they're like oh if if the police are are saying oh vanessa 
she's not a drinker. Yeah. She, that's not her choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and people, there are other people who, who dabble in all, a, a bunch, but usually you stick to one thing and, and that's it. So if she's a well-known opioid user, that's going to raise some flags right away. And, mm-hmm. and they obviously know that Gilbert's a big drinker. He's yes. well-known. He knows the police. The police know him. Mm-hmm. So they're going to be like, even if he is getting sloppy, dude, why are you drunk with... Somebody you, who doesn't drink. Somebody who doesn't drink. Why is she drunk with you? Yeah. So I think he... And he wouldn't know that. No, no. So he wouldn't have that answer off the top of his head of why. Mm-hmm. Still, with minimal evidence that could lead to an arrest, Vanessa's death was ruled accidental. However, with the highest BAC of all victims and no history of drinking alcohol in Vanessa's past, it led the police to begin suspecting foul play. Mm -hmm. On November 6th, after a case conference between law enforcement, the regional crown, and the coroner's office, two separate investigations into Gilbert's long criminal past and alcohol-related deaths began. Just three days later, another death was upon the policeman's doorstep. Edna Shade, a 53-year-old known as Auntie to those doing sex work in the Lower East Side, was found naked and dead in the Beacon Rooms with a BAC of 0.12. Fingerprints of Gilbert's were later found on a mirror inside of that hotel room. Aunties are matriarchs within Indigenous communities in Canada, something so important to the communities as colonizers attempted to eradicate them Mm -hmm. when Edna is given this moniker. It just shows such a great deal of love and respect that she had amongst those who are living in poverty and experiencing that ongoing trauma in Skid Row. With Edna's death, police kicked up the investigation. Gilbert was picked up by police and questioned in relation to Vanessa's death. And while he was not arrested, they did begin surveying his every move. Over the course of 15 days, the police watched Gilbert stalk Skid Row, seeking out other Indigenous women to lure and kill. For Rosemary Wilson, Verna Chartrand, Sheila Joe, and Mabel Olson, I'm happy to say that police intervention saved their lives from this serial killer. All four women returned to a hotel with Gilbert, all with lethal BACs, but all survived. With this surveillance and police listening outside hotel rooms, Gilbert is recorded saying the following, and I do want to put a little trigger warning here. I have heard some of these things from men I have been in a bar with or at a party with, So it's hard to know the story and the names of those who fell victim to Gilbert's crime and manipulation to know that these women died hearing these words. Have a drink. Down the hatch, baby. 20 bucks if you drink it right down. See if you're a real woman. Finish that drink. Finish that drink. Down the hatch. Hurry. Right down. You need another drink. I'll give you 50 bucks if you can take it. I'll give you 10, 20, 50 dollars. Whatever you want. Come on. I want to see you get it all down. You get it right down. I'll give you the 50 bucks and the 13 bucks. I'll give you 50 bucks. I told you that. If you finish that, I'll give you 75. I'll give you $20. The manipulation of these women who are impoverished. This is. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's survival mm-hmm. for the women. They went with somebody who is saying, I'll give you 50, $50 is a lot. Tons of money in the eighties. Yeah. It's tons of money now mm-hmm. in the eighties. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the difference between having a place to sleep that night. That's yeah. the difference between being able to eat that day. That's mm-hmm. the difference between even to feed your children. Yeah. Like that's, 
yeah, and I we've all been at the party that, you know, the boys are like, oh, she can drink, she can drink us under the table, and you were, you felt like the cool one, because yeah. you could keep up with the boys. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. You still hear that, like, oh, you can't keep up with us. Mm-hmm. No, bitch, I don't even want to keep up with you anymore. <laughs> no. I'm too old to play this game. Yeah. But you had to learn that, mm-hmm. because I did. I thought it was cool when I can drink mm-hmm. just as much as anybody else at the party. Mm-hmm. And it was like a little badge of honor. Mm-hmm. And I think for them, it's not that popularity need or that no. need of acceptance. Survival. It's survival because it's about money. Mm-hmm. And it's about having a place to say they are being exploited by the system, living in poverty. And they have unfortunately walked into the hands of a man who will kill them mm-hmm. to try and to try and get his needs met. Kill them and rob them. This police account became a valuable piece of evidence for the Crown's case of first-degree murder. Police reported these words were said with an insistent tone towards an intoxicated woman. When police began to hear the woman gagging, allegedly from a drink, police would enter the room and send the woman to hospital. In the case of Mabel Olson, when police entered the room, they found Gilbert laying on top of an unconscious Mabel, pouring a bottle of vodka into her mouth. After this fourth incident in 1988, Gilbert was finally arrested and charged with the murders of seven women. Gilbert was only charged with the murder of Vanessa Bucker, receiving a 15-year sentence for the reduced charge of manslaughter due to not being able to prove intent. Court documents stated that the reduction to manslaughter was reasoned away because, quote, giving the women the means of killing herself and creating the environment which she would drink to the point of danger of death is not causing the death of a person by any influence of the mind alone, unquote. That Gilbert showed disregard for the women's safety does not equal intent for murder one charge or two, apparently. This sentence was reduced to nine years, and on appeal, he served only six. During his trial, he is quoted as saying, They were on their last legs. I don't give a damn who I was with. I mean, they were all dying sooner or later. Zero remorse for his crimes. Gilbert gave no fucks. Less than no fucks, and the system also gave less than no fucks. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Giving, g- creating an environment in which she would drink to the point. Mabel is on the ground unconscious. Yeah, he didn't create an environment. He created. He didn't even. He didn't create anything. He didn't cre- shit. He created <laughs> nothing. <laughs> he was. And this is so many slaps in the face. Mm-hmm. He's only. He's. It slaps all seven women. He's only charged with Vanessa. He receives a 15-year 15, 15 sentence, serves six. Mm-hmm. Serves six. Yeah. And there's no remorse whatsoever. He's not sitting here like, oh, I realized my errors. I'm so sorry. It's very much like, that. they were going to die, so. Yeah. He's, he's, re, he's literally just, what he said is a Gilbert version of what they've said. Mm-hmm. They were all on their last. They were all on their last legs. He created an environment to which they drank. There's no like. Does the court even believe that they're that they're charged that they should be charging him with something right now? Probably not. But they figured they had to do something because the police walked in on a crime. And why aren't they, why isn't he charged with assault of Mabel and the four women that they remove like mm-hmm. that they were able to save and send to hospital? Yeah. Because if she's unconscious and he's on top of her. Because they cannot prove intent. 
He's on top of her, and Alicia, she's unconscious. I thought. I know that. I'm not excusing it. I, I'm just trying I to know, explain. I know. Oh my god, what a insane slap in the face to all of the victims and their families, and this, and this community. Mm-hmm. Like way to exactly reinforce that if you are impoverished, if you are living in the east side of Vancouver. You are less than. Mm-hmm. So don't even bother coming. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, this mm-hmm. just reinforces yeah. so much. I've been to the east side of Vancouver. I went uh, during COVID to Vancouver and Whistler. And one of the things that I wanted to do was go to the police museum. And if anybody's there, definitely. It was so, so cool. But it is located because it's at the old police station. So mm-hmm. it's in the east side of Vancouver. And we spoke to a couple of locals there because my parents, I knew what to expect Mm -hmm. because of the work that we do. We know about the Lower East Side of Vancouver. Um, But my parents were just in shock. And so we were waiting for the museum to open and a few people kind of walked by and my parents engaged with them. And they talked about their time kind of living in the area and the way that the city is not supporting the folks who are living on the street. Mm -hmm. And just to get that local point of view is incredibly upsetting because what can you do? Mm -hmm. What can you do to help? Mm -hmm. There has to be something to lobby government and say, we need more housing. We need more infrastructure. We need more affordable and appropriate places to, to support people. Mm -hmm. And it's not being done. No. I remember when, um, we, we first looked at, like, Housing First. Mm. Um, I don't remember who, but a couple of people went to East Hastings mm-hmm. to kind of see that and what they were doing around there. And it's it's kind of, it's sad to me that we're talking about the 80s, still the Lower East Side. Yes. And then... 50 years later. 50 years later. Yeah, we're, or 40 years later. 40. We were doing, that's fine, 40, but that's not years much later. different. Yeah, 43 years later, nothing... Nothing's really different. Um, there are some more supports, I guess, set up, but it sounds like yeah. they've just been left. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It was one funny thing. We were walking through, I think they call it Gastown. Uh, there's a big clock that like kind of rings and smoke comes out of it. And I was oh, like, okay. we got to see it. So we were walking through, we were going to a few shops, getting something to eat for breakfast before going to the museum. And there was police caution tape on the other side of the road. And a few officers were kind of walking around and my parents were like, Oh, I wonder what happened last night. And I was like, I don't know. And we're, we keep walking. And then one of the officers like bends down to pick something up. He's like, I found the bullet. <laughs> my oh, parents God. just looked at me. and was like, where are you taking me? <laughs> that that happens it was yeah. so nonchalant mm-hmm. and so like i got it yeah <laughs> we could go now <laughs> it happens all the time yeah oh geez oh jeez. okay are we almost done this dude i'm so <laughs> sad okay in the year 2000 gilbert was released on probation and shocker violated that almost immediately you might be thinking oh what did he do now well you don't have to think very hard The same damn thing. The same fucking thing. He targeted an indigenous woman, attempted to sexually assault her, and forced her to ingest alcohol. Like, we cannot make this up. He was arrested and spent the next 15 months in jail. 
it's almost like they took that one incident a little bit serious, more serious than, you know, the eight beforehand. That's fine. After this release, I think you can guess what happened, and I don't even want to say it, but he was arrested in Winnipeg, Manitoba for violating the same probation order where he was seen binge drinking with a woman named Barb Buckley. A friend of Barb's found her very intoxicated and brought her to the hospital. Good friend Gilbert was also there. When police found out, he was arrested, but acquitted on all charges in 2005. After that release from jail, he attempted to change his name to Paul Pierce, but the courts would not allow it. Thank God. Police put out a statement to the public, labeling him as a dangerous offender, even going as far to name the clothing he was wearing when he was last seen, and inform the public not to consume alcohol in his presence. In 2006, at the age of 74, the boozing barber returned to British Columbia, where he died from cirrhosis of the liver, a common death among those with alcoholism. Where is a Canadian's favorite alcoholic? Are you kidding me? (laughs) What's a Canadian's favorite alcoholic beverage? Uh, I don't know. A mimosa. Oh my God. (laughs) I I actually found out that I was allergic to alcohol. Every time I drank, I broke out in handcuffs. (laughs) I hate you. (laughs) If alcohol can damage your short-term memory, imagine what alcohol could do. (laughs) Don't cancel us. If you drink too much alcohol, you're an alcoholic. If you drink too much Fanta, does that make you fantastic? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what our episode (laughs) Um, Gilbert's a piece of shit. I'm sad that he lived to be 74. Do you um, need more jokes to, <laughs> to to make you feel better? I thought a solid four would take us out of that depression. Yeah, I'm out of the depression. I'm just into the anger stage. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm sad. I'm angry that he lived to be 74. He got, he did mm-hmm. get to live. I don't want to say it's not a fulfilling life, but he did get to do what he loves doing yeah. for a significant lo- amount, lo- a significantly longer time than his victims and their families did. All right, let's just bring it back to the sadness. Yeah, sorry. Okay, well, this has been Gilbert. Do you want me to reread the jokes? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should go to AA. <laughs> Shit. All right, um, this has been Gilbert. I hope everyone has, all of our American listeners, I hope you guys have a great Thanksgiving. Safe Thanksgiving. Safe Thanksgiving. Do your BAC calculator. Yeah, do See what you're going to be doing this weekend. Mm -hmm. I'm Alicia. Oh, yeah. I'm Kayla. (laughs) And this has been... Another episode... Of Tales from the Chesterfield. Don't drink and drive.